This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the quarantine ziggurat at Omaha, deep below the metro area, it's our pleasure to welcome you to episode 598, the penultimate ultimate episode before 600 of the Two-Headed Nerd comic book podcast, and we have no celebration planned whatsoever, folks, because that's not how we do things. My name is Matt Baum, and I am your head number one. Well, it is is definitely true that we have no celebration planned at the moment. (laughs) It's true. Uh... That means nothing. I'm the Internet's Joe Patrick, your head number two. Today on the show, we're reviewing comics from the past two Wednesdays, the 11th and the 18th of November. After that, it's up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum to discuss our must-read picks for next week. And finally, the THN historian Jason Sachs returns to tell you nerds just who the hell is the Taskmaster. Now that you've been warned, it's time to get your hair blown back by our ignorance and ill-informed comic book opinions because it's review time in the cigarette. This week, our review piles are full of skull-faced hitmen, gay Martians, Harley Quinn's new competition, and a bunch of European comics. As usual, our first two comics come from last week and the next two from this week. Matt, take us to jolly old England for our first review, won't you? I think it's jolly old England. And I might be racist. I don't know. Might exactly. be Ireland. I don't. I'm it not could sure. be Ireland. Could be Scotland too. So I'm not really sure. I reviewed Scarret Hood number one from IDW. It's written and drawn by Nick Roche. He's a double threat now. A group of young parents stumble into a local ghost story that turns out to be more than an urban myth. The bulk of the story is told from the point of view of Cormac. He's a man raising a daughter on his own while he tells people his wife is away for work, but there's obviously something going on there. Now, Roche is best known for his art in IDW's Transformers titles, a few different Marvel books, His line is bold and cartoony, but he's really good with mood and emotion. The story works much like some of my favorite horror tales. It starts like a comedy, and then it swerves to the very dark and supernatural. Not all the scares are supernatural, though. There is, like, a very effective scene where Cormac has been separated from his daughter by accident for upwards of 10 hours, and the panic that he feels while trying to find her is palpable. There's some very British, and like I said, sorry if it's Scottish or Irish, dialogue here, but I didn't feel lost at all. Great art, very clever story, and a really solid mystery with some actually, like, real emotional stakes. I I just didn't know what I was getting into, and halfway through, I was a little bored with it, and then by the time it ended, I said, I think I really like this. I'm giving it a buy it. Yeah, no, I really loved this. Um, You know, I... I'm a big fan of um, British or whatever slice of life comics like uh, Giant Days or any of the spinoffs that have come out like um, Steeple or uh, Wicked Things. And this kind of scratched that itch for me um, with a much more supernatural bent to it. 
And uh, I thought it was great. I really liked the dynamic. You know, it's just like it's it's this group of parents that are like, well, fuck it. Our kids are in school. What else are we going to do? Right. We got to investigate this mystery. And they got like fun conspiratorial friend that has all these ridiculous ideas and yeah. stories. Uh, it just so happens this one that he's telling is real. <laughs> so. Right. Uh, yeah, no, I, I thought this was really good. I loved the art. I'm giving this a bite as well. Yeah, props to Nick Roche. Just throwing himself in the mix and going, you know what? Write what you know. It's going to be British or Scottish or Irish and kind of weird, but whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. First up for me is Taskmaster number one from Marvel. Maria Hill has been moitered. Or has she? Or does anyone even care? Taskmaster, the number one suspect, is playing golf in a tournament for celebrity mob bosses. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> when someone starts taking shots at him, he uses all the skills he's learned along the way to in- evade his would-be assassin, but it's a near miss. Only Nick Fury Jr. can help him get away, but even that's only a temporary reprieve. Writer Jed McKay's script is light and fun, but it still brings the action where it counts. Uh, I kind of loved the Taskmaster's personality in this. Um, yeah, I, I've come to I've come to kind of embrace the idea that Taskmaster is a goofy loser that just happens to be very good at what he does. Yeah, I think he is best done when he's not taken too seriously. Right. Exactly. Not exactly. like Deadpool wacky, but not too seriously. Exactly, exactly. The art by Alessandro Vitti is pretty impressive. It's fast-paced, and he does a great job uh, making Taskmaster's skull mask show a variety of ridiculous emotions. Taskmaster number one was a lot of fun, and it's the start of a great solo adventure for a character that I've always been fond of. I'm giving it a buy it. Yeah, this was... It seems like so many times there's movies coming out and we grab one of those characters and we give them a solo adventure because, Hey, they're going to be in the movie and people are excited about it. Right. And it means nothing and nothing happens with it. And maybe nothing happens by the end of this. I don't know. But this first issue was a lot of fun. They made some really great jokes. I love that he was working with one mob boss in the golf tournament and bullseye was working with another one, but bullseye was like, look, I can't hit the ball for you. <laughs> right. So, like, sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, like little jokes, like the taskmaster saying like, I won skull face of the year last year. I beat the red skull. Do you understand what that means? I don't even have a real skull face. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like really nice little inside jokes that Jed McKay makes. The art was really good too. Uh, Alessandro Vitti. It was fantastic stuff. And I feel like his style has changed quite a bit, but it's still, it's evolving. It's not like getting weird or anything. It's just evolved quite a bit from where he started. And I think it's, looks great i'm giving it a buy it as well this is kind of it's it's kind of getting to a place for me where it's like oh you know this reminds me kind of uh kind of of um carlos danda danda yeah a little bit no you know where it's like kind of bulky dudes yeah thick lines and uh like i really just like that for a for a solid action story but once again mark this up to a person that is not drawing the taskmaster's face as a skull mask they're just drawing it as a plain old skull <laughs> which is fine i don't have a problem with yeah it. <laughs> my next review is of cutting edge the siren song number one from titan 
This was written by Francesco Dimitri with art by Mario Alberti and the cover by Butch Geis. The solicit billed the story as the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen meets Tomb Raider, and it couldn't have been more spot on. Leviathan Financial is the world's largest financial body, and they have gathered a disparate group of geniuses to form teams and carry out strange missions to solve the world's greatest mystery. Of course, they'll need to use their individual talents to even figure out what the mystery is before they can solve anything. Mario Alberti draws the hell out of this sprawling cinematic story set in beautiful European locales that the artist has obviously studied. There's like several of his pages that feature panels with talking on one side and just an amazing landscape or island scene set on the other half of the page. Dimitri's script doesn't suffer like some translated work can, but it comes across very interesting. It can be hard to write one genius in a comic book, let alone a whole team of geniuses. And he instantly makes these characters likable, mysterious, and deeply interesting. This was exceptional comic booking that you don't see often these days. I cannot say enough about this art. It, it was simply stunning. I mean, even like pages where nothing was going on, where people are just hanging out at a party or two people are hanging out at a beach with the sun going down. This blew me away. I'm giving it a massive buy it. Yeah, I mean, when you look at a comic book and you see that it's like, oh, cover by Butch Geis. Butch Geis is one of my favorite comic book artists of all time. And then you get to the interior art and it's like, oh, this is this just like blows away any expectations I had. Yeah, like Butch Geis kind of wishes he could draw like this. <laughs> <I'll bet. laughs> you know, I you know, it's a it's a different kind of story. It's not necessarily Butch Geis' style of story, but like it, it, it's it's so impressive. Uh, it, it's beautiful looking. Um, yeah, I really enjoy this a lot. I'm giving it a buy it as well. The art is really phenomenal Stunning. uh if i was gonna take away a point if we were grading on a 10 point scale and i was gonna dock a point so it's a fucking square word balloons. oh you big baby they were fine it's a 9.0 they were fine 9.0 next up for me <laughs> punchline number one from dc the joker war is over and yet we're still being subjected to its aftermath this one shot tells the secret origin of Punchline, Joker's new girlfriend, who is definitely not Harley Quinn, you guys, except that she is just without any charm whatsoever. Well, but she's not like bonkers like Holly, Harley Quinn. She's mm, kind of yeah, cold and calculated. Uh -huh, yeah. This issue tells the tale of a young woman who was victimized by the Joker. I get it. Naturally, she turns into a groupie who just becomes another run-of-the-mill psychopath. It's like if one of the hosts of My Favorite Murder started emulating one of the subjects of her podcast. That's like literally the story of this comic. There's nothing about Punchline's story that's any more compelling than Harley Quinn's. And maybe it's not fair to compare the two characters, but how can we not? We do get some nice character bits from Leslie Tompkins and Harper Rowe, and the art by Mirka Andolfo is at least a little bit different than what I'm used to seeing from the Batman line. For me, though, the worst part about this issue is a cliched subplot in which Harper's brother is lured into Punchline's cult of personality 
by some random internet person he met on Reddit. I honestly don't need anything more from this character. I'm ready for the Joker to take a backseat for quite a while. Punchline is not interesting. Her origin is not interesting. This comic book is not interesting. I'm giving it a leave it. Maybe we read two different comics here. And look, I'm not going to like argue with how you felt about it. And I'm not saying it was great. I mean, I'm giving it a skim it. I'll, like, I'll come right out and say that. I like the art a lot. Mirka Andolfo is awesome and gets better every time I see his or her art. I'm not really sure. <laughs> but the art was fantastic. Now, I do think that people getting seduced into weird cults based on stuff that they find on Reddit happens all the time, every sure. day. See QAnon. <laughs> I'm not saying that does not happen. I'm saying that does not happen if you are the brother of somebody who was trained by Batman and knows about the Bat family and how this shit works. Oh, okay. Well, fair enough. Maybe the brother does, may or may not know. I don't know if like that's the case. But regardless, I didn't think it was as bad as you thought. And I'm not saying it was great. I'm saying I read the punchline stuff that Tinian was doing in the regular Bat books and went, oh, that was better than I thought it would be. This did feel like a bit of a step back for the origin, but I don't think it was as bad as you're saying it is. I'm giving it a skim it. Uh, all right. I will say this. I do like the idea that after everything that the character did in the Joker war, that now that she's um, been captured and is about to be put on trial, she's like, I'm just a victim. I'm, I'm a quaint little college student. And like, like I like the idea that she's able to immediately downplay. Yeah. Like there's a, there's her a, own involvement. There is a cleverness to this character that Harley Quinn does not have. Like Harley Quinn is crazy and wacky and Deadpool with hair and boobs or whatever. But this character is a psychopath. This character is without a doubt can switch on a dime and be whatever she needs to be. And will use her innocence because she's white and she's cute. And that plays to a jury or whatever. And then, can flip the switch when she's done with that. And I think that is kind of interesting. I didn't love this, All but right. I think it's better than you thought it was. All right. I'm going to upgrade it to a skim it because you're right. I'm being a little hard on it. My, my main, my main uh, feeling about the whole character in general is that like, we don't need another one. I, I, I don't, don't need, I don't need another Harley Quinn. I don't disagree. I don't, I don't disagree. need a replacement Harley Quinn. I don't need a replacement Harlequin that is basically just a female Joker. See, I don't disagree, but the more I read about this character, the less I feel like she is just another Harley Quinn. I guess we'll see. Okay, then. My next review is from this week. It's Frank at home on the farm. Number one from Scout, which is not an exciting title at all. Sorry. It's written by Jordan Thomas with art by Clark Bint. Frank is returning home from World War I to his family farm just outside a rural British, again, sorry if it's Scottish or possibly Irish, farm. But when he arrives, his family is missing. None of the local townspeople even seem to remember his family, except for an old friend of Frank's dad who is also suffering from dementia, so might not count. Then the voices kick in, and Frank begins hearing people in his family's home, but no one is there. Except for the animals. Thomas's script feels authentic. 
well-researched for post-World War I England, and he does a nice job creating a very, like, weird and paranoid feel with the dialogue. Bint's art isn't always easy to follow. There were a couple strange panels that had some POV issues, but when he gets into his heavy, scratchy blacks, there are some fantastic results. Bint looks like an artist that is really coming into an interesting style that's very detailed and visceral, but maybe just a little off, which lends to the psychological eeriness of the story as well. The solicit compared this story to Twin Peaks and The Shining. I think there might be a bit of Animal Farm at play here too. I'm giving this a buy it because it was very interesting and it kind of hooked me. Not a great title. Are you you saying Animal Farm just because there are animals? No, because Because you know that Animal Farm is like a communist allegory, right? I'm saying Animal Farm because I think the animals can talk. Okay, well, I mean, that's not Animal Farm per se, but I get what you're going for. <laughs> you read, I mean, you read the comic, right? Yeah, but yes, but I also there's, read Animal Farm, Matt. Animal Farm is... <laughs> there's definitely a part where there are pigs in his house. I understand talking, talking animals, so. Matt. That's a lot of different things. Animal Farm is a very specific thing. Um, like, yeah, I, I could have said like Charlotte's this. Web, but does that make you feel better? What? Sure, <laughs> call it Bambi. I don't give a shit. Call it whatever. Um, the secret life of pets. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I really liked this a lot. Uh, the art I, I found, uh, especially stunning. Uh, like you say, like it might have some issues here or there, but I, I thought it, it had, it had a, it had an underlying creepiness to it. He's got a lot of style. Definitely. That was very effective, yeah. uh, in, in terms of telling the story, like, um, there's a scene where he, he meets up with that old, that old, um, that older person in the room full of taxidermy, taxidermied animals. Yeah. And he has a brief moment of hallucination where like he imagines the person as having like no facial features, yeah. like the no, no nose and like sunken eye sockets. It's, it's weird and gross. He's like, that's been a theme in all the comics I'm reviewing this week. It's like people that went to war and it fucked them up. And when they came home, they could not get away from what yeah, happened still, in the war. Still fucked up. Um, yeah, no, this was great. Uh, this was this was another great debut from Scout Comics. Uh, it's going to fly under the radar for a lot of people, and I think it deserves some attention. I'm giving it a buy it as well. Moving on to next week for me is Barbalian, Red Planet number one from Dark Horse. Jeff Lemire is joined by scripter Tate Bromball in this issue. As with all Black Hammer spinoffs, it examines a certain time and place from which the character identifies. Uh, This time, it's the mid-1980s during the AIDS crisis. Barbalian is having a crisis of identity, and it carries from his Martian life to his early life. Uh, Pardon me. Goddamn. Stupid voice to text. Barbalian is suffering a crisis of identity that carries from his Martian life to his earthly life as he struggles to fit into both. This is a very effective issue that places the character in the middle of a superhero adventure as well as a social one at the same time. The art by Gabriel Hernandez Walta is wonderful. It's so good. It really is. Uh, And I can't say enough how, how effective it is that they like, this is something you don't get from the Martian Manhunter. You know, you don't get, you may have gotten some identity issues from from John Jones in the Martian Manhunter comics, but this is like sexual identity, yeah, and like 
just just trying to just trying to be a living being with complex feelings in a world that rejects you regardless of where you're from uh, just because of who you love. Barbalian number one is a complex study that explores the issues of identity in a way, like I said, that the Martian man grabber only scratched the surface of. I'm giving it a huge buy it. Yeah. This is the Martian manhunter story that DC does not have the balls to tell you. That's what, that's yeah. all it is. Yeah. And if you think about a character like John Jones or Mark Marks here, who is basically the Martian manhunter, they are an alien, a shape-changing alien from a race of shape-changers that obviously does not give a shit about your gender because that's not even how it works where they come from. So when they try to assimilate into human society, the whole idea of gender and hating someone that loves the same gender just doesn't make any sense. It's ridiculous. Well, now that does get brought up in the script. Right. No, I'm saying in this script, but not in DC. Right. Like that's what works so well. That's what Jeff Lemire. I wish Jeff Lemire was writing the JLA so much more than Scott Snyder doing it right now. I really, (laughs) really do. I'm not even sure who's writing JLA right now. (laughs) I think it's still Snyder, isn't it? No, no, he left left months ago. did he? Okay, sorry. I just, these are the kind of JLA stories I would like to see with these characters. And we're getting them at Dark Horse with, why can't I say the name of the regular book? Black Hammer? Black Hammer. We're getting them at Dark Horse with the Black Hammer stories. Jeff Lemire is wonderful in these books. And Gabriel Walta's art is perfect for this story. It's just, I can't say enough about how important comics like this are. And this will be on my short list for best single issue when we start talking about the end of the year Beppo Awards. So watch for that one. Huge buy it. My next review is of Sea of Sorrows, number one of five from IDW. Sea of Sorrows. It is written by Rich Duick with art by Alex Cormack. The same creative team worked on a horror story set in the Russian gulag, so they are no strangers to historical fiction. Here, a group of unlikely pirates are searching for a German sub that sank off the coast of Newfoundland shortly after the end of World War II. The rumor is it's loaded with Nazi gold, but there's something else down there with the treasure too. Alex Cormack's dark, thick lines work very well for these creepy historical tales. He excels when he's drawing gory hellscapes worthy of any death grind album cover. There's like a flashback that one of the characters has to World War II. That is horrifying. <laughs> and it made me giggle out loud. Duick's script is very well researched. His dialogue is perfect for this group of scallywags. And his timing is very cinematic in classic Spielberg sense. The book moves very fast. There's a fairly large cast mixed with flashbacks, an underwater heist, and even a monster, which isn't a spoiler because one of the alternate covers features the monster. Come on, IDW. (laughs) What are you guys doing? I'm giving this a huge buy it. It was just a ton of fun. And it, it felt like, it felt like some of the things that I love about the movie Jaws, the way that it moves really fast and when it's talking and there's people talking over each other and there's all these different characters with different motives. I, I thought this was great. 
Yeah, me too. Uh, you know, I, I didn't finish uh, Road of Bones, which was their original series, um, but I did really love the first issue. And this was no different for me. I thought this was totally great. Um, I have a real soft spot for historical horror stories. I do too. Um, you know, uh, for some reason, the only one that's coming to mind right now is like Overlord, though that's more of like a grindy action horror movie um this is much overlord. more subtle i can't believe you liked overlord it was so gross i can't believe you can handle uh, yeah. that <laughs> no you know what like give me give me give me total weird gory action and oh, i'm fine with it i loved it um but uh yeah i mean this is not exactly that but uh this is a much a much more slow burn much more tense uh and uh, i i love the art by alex cormack it's yeah. so good and and moody and atmospheric and um yeah it's it's a really really fun story it's told very very well i i love the contrast uh, or the way that they um kind of reflect on world war 2 and how uh it's affected these characters and like anything anything like down in the depths of the dark deep dark ocean is terrifying oh yeah Absolutely terrifying. Oh, yeah. And Cormac does a fantastic job of like, I mean, you're in the ocean, right? Which is wide open, but it's so dark that you're in this complete darkness. Just, it's just black. And he's got nothing this, but he does infinite blackness. Wonderful job making it very claustrophobic. And like yeah. you can only see about 10, 15 feet in front of you. And all of a sudden, boom, something's there. You know, like, ah. <laughs> Yeah, and you're wearing no. old timey like diving gear with a hose yeah, right, that with plugs the bell, into your the, goddamn the bell, head. <laughs> you know? Yeah, the diving bell. Yeah, no, this was totally rad. I'm giving it a huge bite as well. Lots of fun. Our last review. <laughs> Our last review of the week goes to Avengers Marvel's snapshot number one from Marvel. Number four with a bullet. <laughs> number four with a bullet. The Marvel's Snapshot series has ostensibly been about the same thing that the original Marvel's series was about, what it was like for the average person in the Marvel Universe to live in a world with superheroes. This series has been up and down in terms of success, but this installment is its lowest point. <laughs> Writer Barbara Kessel scripts a story about a new EMT who happens to be on her day off when the Avengers battle Red Ronin. Something you would not realize was happening unless you had a master's degree in Marvel history or had memorized the Marvel Universe handbook and recognized that weird headpiece. Carrie, the EMT in question, spends the entire issue in a workout leotard trying to save civilians from collateral damage happening all around them. Meanwhile, Jay, a police officer, is doing the same thing when their paths cross. What follows is a story full of cliched meet cute tropes peppered with brief stories about the lives about their lives and various run-ins with the Avengers experienced by everybody that's huddled together. Now I might be more critical of the writing that I'm being right now. If it weren't for the absolutely horrendous art by penciler Staz Johnson and inker Tom Palmer, Tom Palmer is a legendary inker. He inked Steve Epting's run on the Avengers in the 80s. He inked Avengers Under Siege, which is one of the greatest Avengers uh, stories of all time. Staz Johnson had a nice career in the 90s. He had a long run on Robin. 
this book is garbage. It's legitimately one of the worst looking comic books I've read all year. The anatomy is atrocious. Detail is almost non-existent. Figures and faces are grotesquely distorted with off-center eyes, flattened faces, and other disturbing features. I don't know how a comic book that looks like this gets approved by Marvel Editorial. It is truly terrible. And this is coming from me, a guy who can forgive a lot. If you thought John Romita Jr.'s version of Gorilla Grodd was bad, <laughs> take a gander at Avengers Snapshot number one. I'm giving this a huge leave it. Yeah, we, we talked about this two weeks ago, I think. And I can't remember what comic book it was, but it was another one of those uh, like movie specials where we just grab somebody. I think it was a Black Widow thing, possibly. But where we said, yeah, with they the weird know. anatomy. Yeah. Marvel knows. They're not idiots. They look at this stuff and they have to know this is not good. But we don't care. And we're just going to put it out because we said we were going to and this was a thing. So here you go. Now, my question is, and I agree with you 100% on everything you said, but my question is, who is this for? Who are they trying to trick? Yeah, I don't know. It can't be for Avengers fans it because the be. Avengers are barely in it. And I would also argue it can't be for fans of good art or good writing. If this were a kid's book and you labeled it young, you know, readers or whatever, or for children. Oh no, this would not get a kid to like comics. I might. Yeah. Even then it would still be a failure. I just don't get what they were going for. I don't know what this is and I don't know why it hit the stands huge leave it this was garbage pure garbage and i'll i admit i read half of it I read half of it and went i don't need to read any more of this There's, i almost stopped i did i almost stopped but i powered through I, I i read half of it i looked at the last page and went okay got it nothing here i need to really talk about this is trash so joey which book wins what is your must read for our new comics pile. Man, there's a lot of great contenders this week. I'm thinking, I'm thinking. <laughs> keep thinking, keep thinking. You know, I think I'm giving it to Barbalian. Yeah, I have to as well. I I, I mean, I, I really liked Cutting Edge and I thought it was incredible. Yep. Just beautiful. And a lot of times this sounds very, I don't know. I don't want to sound nationalistic, but a lot of times when you start translating, you know, European comics for American readers. They can be clunky, and it wasn't at all. It was so good. But Barbalian just felt important. It felt like it was looking at serious issues that we're still dealing with today. And I already spoke about it. I'm not going to go back into it. But it is the Martian Manhunter comic I wish I could read at DC. I thought it was beautiful. It had an amazing message. It was an incredible book. And, I mean, it's absolutely not to take anything away from, you know, Frank at home or no, uh, um, uh, Sea of Sorrows, you know, great books this week, absolutely, uh, total, total great fun reads, but Barbalian just hit kind of differently. Yeah, it man, it's just a different kind of book. It really was great. That does it for reviews this week, and you're, you're too this, good at that. <laughs> what's that? You're very good at that. <laughs> Thank you. 
That is the sound of Rob Liefeld's cable pumping rounds into some random bad guy as seen in some random issue of New Mutants or X-Force. It doesn't matter which. This onomatopoeia of the week comes courtesy of legendary comic writer Tom Pyre via Twitter. If you want to submit an onomatopoeia of the week, you can post it to any of our social media accounts or send an email to twoheadednerd at gmail.com. Or better yet, call us and make the noise. Tell us where it came from and we will play it on the show. I should have asked Tom Payer to do it. I'm sure he would have. I'm sure he would have gotten right on it. Yeah, he doesn't have anything else yeah, going on. Tom's- that is it for reviews, and now it's time to head up to the TGN Sanctum Sanctorum to meditate on our must-read picks next week. So, Patrick, tell these nerds what they should be reading next Wednesday. My pick for next week is The Other History of the DC Universe Number 1 from DC Comics. It's written by John Ridley, drawn by Giuseppe Camincoli, Andrea Cucci, and Jamal Campbell. It's some pages for $6.99. Cucci, Cucci, uh, the diamond, by the way. The Diamond site was actually down for maintenance today. Couldn't look anything up. Oh, I didn't have any problems. Really? Oh, yeah. I couldn't even log in. Well, who would want to log into Diamond on New Comic Wednesday? I mean, come on. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, not very many people. No. Here's your solicit. Academy Award-winning screenwriter John Ridley, a.k.a. 12 Years a Slave Writer, also he wrote Let It Fall, examines the mythology of the DC Universe in this compelling new miniseries that reframes iconic moments of DC history and charts a previously unexplored sociopolitical thread as seen through the prism of DC superheroes who come from traditionally disenfranchised groups. This unique new series presents its story as prose by Ridley, married with beautifully realized illustrations by Giuseppe Camincoli and Andrea Cucci. Uh, Jamal Campbell is listed in the credits. Not sure what he's doing, but I love Jamal Campbell. Something. (laughs) Issue number one follows the story of Jefferson Pierce, the man who will one day become Black Lightning as he makes his way from being a young track star to a teacher and ultimately to his role as a hero. Uh, Future issues. Focus on characters such as Karen and Mal Duncan, Tatsu Yamashiro, a.k.a. Katana, and Renee Matoya. Extensively researched and masterfully executed, the other history of the DC Universe promises to be an experience unlike any other. You may think you know the history of the DC Universe, but the truth is far more complex. The other history of the DC Universe isn't about saving the world. It's about having the strength to simply be who you are. I hope it's better. Than the Marvel Voices stuff. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> this uh, this <laughs> is uh, this is following the format of the history of the DC Universe Prestige series, which came right at the end of Crisis on Infinite Earths. Right. It was prose written by Marv Wolfman with illustrations by George Perez. Uh, I love that idea. I love the idea of examining the DC Universe from the lens of. Uh, of marginalized groups. And this has been in the works at DC for years. It's just gotten pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And then it's finally coming out and I can't wait. My pick for next week is I walk with monsters. Number one from vault. It's written by Paul Cornell with art by Sally Cantrino. Cantorino. Cantorino. There we go. 32 pages, 399. 
Here's your solicit. In J.C.'s past is the important man who took away her brother. Now J.C. has David, who sometimes transforms into a terrifying beast. Together, they've found a way to live, to hunt, sniffing out men who prey on the vulnerable. But J.C. and David are about to run into the important man again. From Paul Cornell, who's written Wolverine, okay, Doctor Who and Elementary, and Sally Cantrino, who worked on the last song, and We Have to Go Back! comes a haunting story about the monsters that walk beside us all and sometimes lurk within. Look, I love Paul Cornell. I don't know where Paul Cornell has been. I'm glad Paul Cornell is back and he's writing comics. And I'm hoping this is great. The art looks really good in the previews. This sounds like a lot of fun. I'm just happy to have Paul Cornell back. Yeah, he's been gone a while. Yeah, a long time. The THN Trade of the Week goes to Adventure Man, Volume 1, The End and Everything After. It's a hardcover from Image Comics written by Matt Fraction with art by Terry and Rachel Dodson. It's, again, some pages for $24.99. Here's your solicit. Where his story ended, her story begins. Everyone knows the story of how Adventure Man, the greatest pulp hero of all time, ended in a heartbreaking cliffhanger with our hero facing his very execution. Now, learn the startling truth about how, 80 years after his seeming demise, single mother Claire and her adventure fan son Tommy light the spark of resurrection. Can these inheritors of the Adventure Man legacy rise up to face down the evil that bested the original? This collects the first four issues of Adventure Man. Uh, the f- I'm a little bit behind, but the first issue at least was like super thick. So if you're thinking it's a hard, it's a $25 hardcover with only four issues in it, these were like oversized issues. Yeah, you're totally wrong. Each issue, I think each issue was like 36 pages or something like that, or 48 pages actually. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, that's what yeah. I'm saying. And uh, it's so much fun. It, yeah. It's Matt Fraction just having the time of his life writing these weird pulp heroes and their legacies. And it's a blast, beautifully drawn by the Dodsons. Yeah. Absolutely check out Adventure Man. If this were just the Dodsons do character sketches based on ideas from Matt Fraction, I would pay 24 bucks for it <laughs> because it's that good. Fair and enough. I am caught up and Adventure Man is fan friggin tastic. I love it. It's some of the best stuff I've read from Matt Fraction since Casanova. I, I, I love it so much. Too much fun. Um, point of order. Paul Cornell has been working on the Doctor Who TV show. So, oh, there you go. Making his money. He's doing okay. Good for him. Now that you know what we're reading next week, we want to hear about what you're excited to read or about what you think we should be reading. We miss a ton of stuff. We just kind of throw some darts out there and hit some stuff every once in a while. Let us know what we should be reviewing, please. And also, be sure to add these comics to your pull list so you can play along with us and do your local comic shop a favor too. Since the Taskmaster had a new issue hit the stands, and at some point he will be the big bad in the upcoming Black Widow movie, we got to thinking. Maybe we should tell these nerds just who the hell is the Taskmaster. Then we were like, nah. Let's make Jason Sachs the official THN historian and host of the classic comics cavalcade podcast do it. So, get ready for the Taskmaster edition of who the hell is this guy? He's just better at it. I mean, period. He's just so much better at it.
Hi, I'm Jason Sachs, official historian of Two-Headed Nerd and the host of the Classic Comics Cavalcade podcast, available on all podcast platforms. I'm here to tell you, who the hell is Taskmaster? Yes, Taskmaster, who just premiered in his own series last week and who will soon appear in the Black Widow movie, which I hope I can still see in the movie theater at some point in my lifetime. Remember movie theaters? They're kind of fun. Anyway, give me five minutes and I'll give you the lowdown on this intriguing but fairly obscure character. Taskmaster cameoed in the pages of Avengers 195 from 1980, then appeared for the first time in full in issue 196. Those issues were part of a small and mostly great run of comics by David Michelinie and George Perez. That's the same run, by the way, where Ms. Marvel was kidnapped and impregnated by her own son. But I digress and you see why I say it was kind of a great run. But anyway... In his debut, Taskmaster reveals he has the ability to mimic any hero's powers just by watching them. In that way, he was able to copy football superstars and cowboys simply by watching them in the movies or on TV. Of course, this being Marvel in the 1980s, Tasky could have become a supervillain, but he apparently also mimics someone's smart strategic mind because he got into the business of training henchmen for other villains. He also has a really cool costume with a skull face mask, his own version of Captain America's shield, Hawkeye's bow and Swordsman's sword. With his uniquely derivative fighting abilities and a well-placed smoke bomb, Tasky is able to escape the Avengers and turn up every now and then in the Marvel U after that, including a pretty decent run in the kind of okay Deadpool spin-off comic Agent X, which came out around 2000-2001 or so. Taskmaster also gets his own miniseries in 2002, produced by Udon Studios. It's a decent enough mini, about infiltration into Stark Industries and more corporate espionage. If you like Marvel with a manga feel, you might enjoy this comic, and it is available on Marvel Unlimited. Hey, so if you're at the Lake House, you may as well check it out. Of course, as we all know, the Civil War turned everything upside down in the Marvel Universe, and in the wake of the destruction at Stamford, the Taskmaster became a member of the Thunderbolts, where he fought and was smashed by the Invisible Woman. Okay. And then becomes a trainer for the government's 50-state initiative. As part of that work, he controls a riot in the Negative Zone prison, stops the return of Nightmare, and is a crucial part of the Siege of Asgard. What I loved about his long run in Avengers The Initiative is that Taskmaster is always his own irascible self, kind of always fighting for his own advantage while also doing work for the government. I'm not a big fan of Crystal Gage's writing, but Taskmaster comes off pretty well in 20 or so issues he appears in. Following the initiative run is probably the best comics Taskmaster has appeared in so far. His 2010 mini, also available on Marvel Unlimited, is written by the awesome Fred Van Lente with art by someone named Jeff De Paolo. If you know who he is, uh, could you let me know? Because Paolo's art's pretty good in this. That mini tells the backstory of this hero villain. The series does a brilliant job of dealing with Taskmaster's corrupted memories of his past, which give the character a complicated and tragic past. I don't want to spoil the story of what happens in these four issues, except to say the twists and turns really bring the character to life. That Lenti delivers a story that's both tragic and funny, a pretty damn perfect mix of pathos and charm, which made me love the character. Now the Taskmaster is apparently going to be a supporting character in the Black Widow movie, which would be fun. His costume definitely looks good in the promo pictures and true to the comics. With his unique abilities, great costume, and intriguing hero-villain elements, Taskmaster deserves to be promoted from his current second-tier status. For a guy who's been around for 40 years, it's about time he became a lead, 
I think he just might become one. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy. Catch you later. Excelsior! Oh. That is it for THM 598! Next week, the Cosmic Long Box returns, and we'll be reviewing holiday comics. Believe it or not, 2020 is almost fucking over, thank God! <laughs> and we are in the holiday seasons. We'll be talking holiday specials, comics that take place during the holidays. It's going to be fun. You guys get it, okay? Until then, Joe can Patrick. I, can I please... Can I please request a rule? Okay. No 80-page holiday anthologies. Uh, we'll see. Joe Patrick, until such time as our next episode, give these nerds a question of the week that we've been sitting on for a damn month. It's been a long time it's coming. Both Not of our faults. It's yes. both of our faults. This week's question was submitted by New Guy via the THN forums. Apparently, America's premier asshole came up with a plan to leave Walter Reed Hospital acting weak, but then perking up and dramatically ripping his shirt open, revealing a Superman logo underneath. Thankfully, this dumb shiz didn't actually happen, but it very easily could have. Imagine a character of Jewish creation who is a refugee who regularly sacrifices himself for the greater good and famously took on the KKK, being used in a cheap electoral propaganda stunt by a neo-fascist who stole money from a kid's cancer charity. I don't know who you could possibly be talking about. That person is no longer a figure in American politics. No, we don't have to worry about it. And he's all but quit. So <laughs> He's all but quit. <laughs> he's doing nothing. <laughs> so, new guy's question is, what do you think was the worst example of misuse, appropriation, or fundamental misunderstanding of a comic book character or other nerdy character? Cover to Cover is back every Saturday at 10.30 Central Standard Time, live on our Facebook page, and it's the new home for our nerd news segment. So call us at 402-819-4894, or shoot an MP3 of your answer to twoheadednerd at gmail.com, and you could be internet famous. Remember, keep it two minutes or less, and please, share the air with the rest of the nerds. If you're new to the show and you would rather donate money to the KKK than our Patreon, I assure you, it is only because you haven't heard enough. You know what? I'm pretty fine with you just not <laughs> like, giving us if, your money. If that comes down to it. <laughs> the good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital long box archive over at twoheadednerd.com. But hosting that many episodes, it is not cheap. So we want to thank donors like Michael Lee. He helps keep this show alive. Now, I'm, I'm just going to peek behind the curtain here, guys. We get sponsorship offers constantly. I mean, like, <laughs> these sponsors won't leave us alone. But we don't want to be held down by sponsorship chains. We, we want to break free and be who we are and, and tell you the truth and fight for your right to read good comics. So it's nerds like you that keep us going. None of that is true. Please offer to become one of our corporate overlords. I beg you. <laughs> Before we go, our weekly shout out goes to Alan Moore, wizard king of the comics industry, who turns 67 years old today as we record this. As if that even mattered to an immortal being. Word to you, sir. Yeah, that's not a guy that celebrates birthdays anymore. I mean, give me a break. Come on. His daughter, his daughter Leah, posted a picture of him and his granddaughter yeah. 
riding a piece of playground equipment it was <laughs> earlier this morning. I saw uh, that. It is adorable. Yeah, it's like, here's a picture of Alan Moore on some playground equipment to make your day. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just tell people you've been hanging out the playground pushing strange kids on their teeter-totters. This is the Two-Headed Nerd signing off. That took a turn. I'm telling you, you don't want to be a sex criminal. Pre-order your comics, okay? You heard it here first. If you don't pre-order your comics, you're a sex criminal. Sex criminal! <laughs>